episode 84 of the Thinking LSAT podcast in Los Angeles. I'm Nathan Fox with me in Washington, D.C., Ben Olson. Ben, how you been? Doing great. Just recently, I finally, finally saw the Melissa McCarthy skit on Spicer. Have you seen that? I have been hearing about it, but I have not seen it. Is it uh, amusing? Oh, yes. It's worth its weight in gold. I feel like that by the end of Trump's four years, I'll probably have lost a year of my life, you know, maybe just due to his increase in pollution or his, his I don't know, whatever. He's just kind of crazy. But I think Melissa McCarthy just gave me three years back. So that's a net of two. So I'm up <laughs> two. Like, it was so funny. I was laughing the whole time. Maybe Maybe it was just late at night or something. I don't know. But... Usually I watch SNL skits and, you know, there's a few chuckles here and there, or sometimes I'll say, oh, that was funny. But if I'm verbally saying that was funny, it wasn't that funny, you know? Right. This was like laugh out loud from start to the very last second. Wow. It, it was That's just, great. I thought it was hilarious, but. She's anyways. been on, I think, didn't she come back on and do it again? Um because it was like a, more than a week ago, I believe, that she did the first one. I saw a headline calling her a modern-day Jackie Gleason. So that's pretty high praise, I guess. She is funny. That, that's Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I know she's she's done other stuff and been in some movies and all that, but that clip was, was worth it. Yeah. So I would recommend watching it. Yeah. We knew that a, a really shitty president is going to be good for comedy. There's no question about that. I mean, it was hard to make fun of Obama because he's just, he's so well-spoken and so, you know, <laughs> to get put together and no scandals yeah. and all that. Yeah. So it's like almost impossible to mock him. But then with Trump, now you've just got this gold mine, <laughs> Trump and his whole administration. His, his whole team, like, I think, you know, people come and they go. And I think that that's because those who stick around are the ones who sort of go along with his insanity, you know? Yeah. Who go along with <laughs> patent lies. How how in the world could you want or keep that job where you have to go on national television and be like, well, yeah, you know, what, what he meant was the exact opposite. <laughs> yeah, strange times. Today on the show, we've got uh, some emails, of course. Uh, we have an update from Ben on about why... He, he is a nihilist who believes that all of human existence is pointless. <laughs> and we also have uh, questions from the June 2007 logical reasoning. Anything else before we dive into that, Ben? Uh, no, that's it. Okay. Where, where would you like to start? You want to start by talking about your philosophy of the meaningless... <laughs> The meaninglessness yeah, well, of life. When, when other people talk about it, it does sound rather negative and depressing, but I, I don't feel negative or depressed. So um, maybe I'm not describing my, my points of view correctly, or uh, I really don't buy into them fully, at least to the point where I embrace the, the entire or all the implications of what I'm saying. But one thing that um, I saw this week, my dad is really into articles that have to do with where things are going, things that have to do with the future. So he's always sending me articles on the latest in genetics and how we're all going to become, you know, these perfect humans eventually. It's inevitable and 
cars and whatever. So anyways, this week he sent me an article on that's entitled an AI law firm wants to automate the entire legal world. So this goes back to it it all being pointless because even if you go to law school and get a job, if this law, if this firm succeeds, then it will automate everything and then it will have been pointless. Obviously, I don't think there's a, a way to automate everything. You still have to have experts who program the automated things and so forth. So <laughs> it's not possible to do that. But this article is pretty interesting. And this firm, which is called Law Geeks, uh, Geeks is G-E-E-X, uh, has already um, succeeded in automating the contract review process that that businesses go through. And apparently it's pretty effective, and the algorithms that they've developed have dramatically sped up the time that it takes to evaluate contracts. So big companies who have to evaluate contracts to make sure that they are in line with what they're trying to do and trying to accomplish can put their contracts through these algorithms. And as they continue to develop them, the algorithms are getting better and better. And like everything else, coming to a point where they're, you know, they're not necessarily doing a better job than a human, but the algorithms along with a human reviewer at the end to sort of look at whatever was flagged does a lot better than someone who just reviews the contract in the old school way of reading a bunch of pages and trying to flag potential problems. Sure. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, it's like the chess thing where chess computers can now beat humans. Yeah, for sure. If you let a human and a computer play together, then they will be able to smash just the computer by itself. Hmm, that's interesting. It's a new like it's like a new variant of chess where it's sort of like a hybrid cyborg chess where it's a human and computer team playing against another human and computer team. Yeah, it's sort of like you take advantage of the AI's ability to crunch a lot of data, something that humans aren't really good at. But combine that with your intuition and your ability to, you know, tell it which areas to crunch. Yeah. And interpret the results. Speaking of which, did you hear about the, um, I think it was poker. I mean, you're into poker, right? Wasn't there Uh, this competition that was just conducted in which a, a bunch of poker players went against, I don't know if it was poker, but. Texas Hold'em, is that a kind of poker? Yes, I don't even the, know anything. Yeah, that's the most popular kind of poker. Yeah. I think that's what they were doing. But anyways, they um, they played several games against this computer, and I guess it was the first time that a computer was competing in a game with incomplete information. So, for example, in chess, right. you have all the information, but in poker, you don't know what the your competitor's cards are or things like that and so there's this incomplete information situation and it's the first time that this computer succeeded and it beat everybody and it learned they created an algorithm that allowed it to learn from its mistakes so it wasn't just like a single algorithm that was playing over and over and over again. They had this like meta algorithm that fixed the algorithms they had. So they learned, the the computer actually learned from its opponents and got better and and, and ended up winning the uh, entire tournament against many, many different players. In any case, sounds like this is where everything is going. So 
if you're planning to go to a lower tier law school, I would seriously reconsider it. I just don't see <laughs> that much work in the future for people, except for maybe, you know, uh, small local uh, things, which even that is is being automated to some degree, right? Like there's a lot of law, uh, websites out there that help small businesses take care of the legal aspects because it's pretty standard and uh, predictable. Yeah, it it just depends. It's so hard to give blanket advice on telling people what to do with their life. You know, um, this does look negative for lawyers on the one hand, like take computers taking over a lot of this work. On the other hand, this is some of the worst work that would be available, right? Just endlessly reviewing documents and if it's the kind of thing that a computer can do better, then maybe you wouldn't have been that satisfied doing that work to begin with. Well, yes and no. I mean, I think uh, when you look at some of these contracts and what's on the line, attorneys do make a lot of money from them. So, for example, uh, if you take a look at a, a real estate, a commercial real estate contract, it's a very basic thing. But because millions um, of dollars are on the line, these real estate investors and brokers and the people who are dealing in this real estate uh, in these transactions are so concerned about the outcome, you know, yeah. they pay $25,000, $30,000 for one contract. They're just like, don't F it up, get it right. <laughs> yeah. And so you have a team of attorneys who are scouring over a document and that's, you know, that that's a lot of money, even though it's kind of boring work. Yeah. Sure. I, and I'm, I guess money is good. I mean, boring work is really, really bad, but money is It good. is bad. I just, well, I mean, I, I don't know. I, I guess I, I kind of assume that most legal work is boring. That's my perspective. But, yeah. um, ugh, you know, I, there's just a lot of things I would not want to do. I, I think, yeah. anyways, um, just an interesting uh, article. It's, again, called an AI, an AI Law Firm Wants to Automate the Entire Legal World. So... Yeah, definitely check that article out. You know, one thing I've been realizing recently is that these lower ranked law schools, if you're an entrepreneur, they might be a lot better deal than than if you're not an entrepreneur. You know, we had Eliza, the interview that I did for the last episode on the show, she went to a not great ranked law school and ended up having a fine career for herself. I had beers last week with my buddy Robert, who was in one of my very first LSAT classes. He went to uh, California Western Law School mm. and, you know, paid a bunch of money, failed the bar three times, but then passed it on his fourth attempt and now has his own family law practice in Santa Ana. And, yeah. But it's a, it's a different type of person, you know, that's a hustler and that's going to go out and start their own thing. Because sure. there's no way that that guy is like getting some big fancy salary job, at least not until he's proven himself, you know, and the only way he could, the only way he got a chance to prove himself is to go out and just hang his own shingle. Mm -hmm. It's sort of like if you see law school as a, as a degree granting institution, you're going to get that degree and then leverage it yourself. You're going to take advantage of the freedom it gives you to practice law or to pursue something related to law in that regard. And basically you're taking ownership for what you're going to do with it as opposed to just kind of getting it and then 
hoping someone hires you. Yeah, like this is my ticket to a great job where I don't have to hustle. I just have the job and they tell me what to do kind of thing. Sure. That's a lot less likely, I would say, if you go to these lower ranked law schools. It's going to be yeah. very hard for you to People are just aren't going to want to hire you to put you into their big, you know, law firm. There's just not that many jobs, right? The jobs mm -hmm. are in the big firms mm -hmm. and the big firms are hiring from the very top schools or mm -hmm. the top students at, at the schools. But yeah, it's, it's just, I don't, I, I, I hate crushing people's dreams unnecessarily. And there, there are these types of people that are just, they have that entrepreneurial spirit and, and that's their plan. Like, yep. I'm starting my own law firm. Yeah. Especially if you can get a deal on these lower tier law schools, get in for almost nothing. Yeah. Then it's, you look at that cost benefit and you say, okay, th this is the this is what I need to have the the legal right to practice, and right. I got it, and now I'm going to go use it. That's actually, I mean, that that would be a very good argument for going to the lowest ranked schools instead of the middle ranked schools, right? If you're gonna if you're starting your own thing anyway, if you're not going for that big law job. Yeah. Then what good is it to go to the school that's ranked 70th in the country if you could go for free to a school that's ranked 120th in the country? Yeah, your clients aren't going to ask you where you went to law school. They're going to no. ask you, how do I get out of this DUI or whatever it is exactly. that you're trying yeah. to do? Right. I, mean, I imagine just this guy, Robert, his clients must be, they're, they're just totally normal people who don't know shit about the law and they need a divorce. And he He's, he's legally qualified to do that. And, mm -hmm. you know, he's, he's running these divorce cases for them or he's doing, he's doing a little bit of everything, you know, he'll do criminal case. He'll do almost anything that comes his way. Cause he just has to be out there hustling. Hmm. But in that case, his, his clients, I mean, California Western law school might as well be Harvard law school as far as his, as far as his clients are concerned. Yeah. Alrighty. We have these letters. This one says, subject, holy shit, exclamation point. Thank you, exclamation point. I only have one sample of this miracle, but I was consistently missing four to six on logical reasoning. I listened to a podcast and you stressed taking it slow and not worrying about time and instead working on making sure you understand each question. I finally took that advice and made it through all but one of the questions and got all but the last one right. Right now, I am pumped and eternally grateful. Now, I realize this is one sample, but I think this method taught me that I need not care about time and focus completely on understanding. And that is from Alexis. That's exciting. She yes. got everything right except for the last one. You know, it's interesting. I think a lot of people misunderstand what we're saying when we're saying to slow down and not understand. I mean, sorry, to slow down and to understand what you're doing. We're not saying that that will necessarily make you slower. In fact, in a lot of cases, it will make you faster because you will understand and thus be able to quickly answer the question once you know what's going on. And they're like, I don't have time to slow down. <laughs> it's like, you don't have time not to slow down. Yeah. And this, this, this outcome is very unsurprising. She got to all but the last one. Uh, probably because as soon as you understood it, you're able to go through the answers quickly and confidently and not sit there and mull things over. Yeah, it's I'm, maybe I need to change the way I sell that idea. You know, mm -hmm. instead of putting the slow down part first, maybe it's just focus on accuracy, not speed. Like focus on accuracy 
and don't worry about how long it takes. Mm-hmm. Because then, then because what happens if you if you do just focus on accuracy is that you you very likely might end up going plenty fast anyway. So it's not like, hey, I need you to go slower. Mm-hmm. It's more like I need you to not try to go fast. I need you to just understand, sure, and focus yeah. on accuracy. Yeah, yeah. I mean, oftentimes it does mean slowing down in the passage, but yeah, that's because they're trying to go too fast or something. Yeah. Well, I'm, I mean, and then there's extreme cases too, right? If you do all 25 questions, but you only get 13 of them, right? You clearly. <laughs> yeah. That's a student who has no business doing all 25 questions. I mean, what are yep. you doing? You, you could, you need to do 15 questions and get 15, right? Mm-hmm. That's better than doing 25 and getting 13, right? Yeah. And, you know, sometimes they say, well, I can't, I can't go to school where I want to go to if I only get 15 right. And it's like, well, that's the, that's the first goal. Yeah. We're not saying that you have to stop there, but you need to get those right and then work on 16. You're not getting 20 right until you get 15 right. Yeah. And you're not getting 15 right until you get 10 right. So you just you have to go back to baby steps and just be thinking about Whatever question it is you're working on, that one that one question is the most important question on the test right now for you. Yeah. You have to get that one right. You can't waste time by missing that question. You have to take however much time you've already spent on it. That doesn't matter. You need mm-hmm. to spend more time on it in order to pay off all that time that you've already spent. Mm-hmm. You know, and and just get it. You might be really close to unlocking it. It might all you need maybe is another ten or fifteen seconds to unlock it. Yeah. But what we see students do, naive students just throw up their hands. Ah, I, I gotta, I gotta move on here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> just throw the question away, basically. So anyway, thank you, Alexis, for the update. Sounds like you are definitely on the right track. You want to read this next one? Sure. So it says, "Hi, my name is Nisha or Nisha. Do you think I might say Nisha? I don't know. Nisha." I just started listening to your podcast because I think I needed more insights on the test. By the way, great show. It gets me through my work day. <laughs> that always makes me laugh. <laughs> yeah. I love the idea of office workers listening to the show while they're sitting there at their desk. Yeah. We always wonder, like, what uh, what kind of work are, are they doing that they can uh, sort of just do this in the background? But yeah. in any case, I have, my, I have many questions, but more concerns than ever. And honestly, I have not been hearing honesty, especially from law schools. That is not surprising. I graduated in 2013 and I've had many jobs that weren't satisfying. I started working in contracts for the government, for the state government, and tutoring foster children with disabilities. And because of that, I decided to go to law school in September. I I only highlighted this because I, I was curious what about tutoring foster children with disabilities would lead someone to want to go to law school. Yeah, she, I don't know, I would infer that, or I would guess that she got close to those kids and saw that they had all these legal issues, um, either with the foster system or disabilities, uh, possibly, and just decided, hey, I want to, you know, I want to do more for these people. And so she's going to law school trying to save those kids. Yeah, I guess so. Let's see here. She's been studying ever since. And she wanted to take the February 2017 LSAT, which just happened a few weeks ago, but postponed it to the June LSAT because I knew I wasn't ready. She has a tutor who is great, but she's also doing some self-studying. 
She took her first pretest and scored a 144. Now I'm re- rethinking law school altogether. Huh? Yeah, it seems a little premature, right? Yeah, 144 is not a horrible score. I mean, I've seen people go from the 140s into the 160s, you know, very frequently. Mm-hmm. If you work hard at it, you can learn the language of this test. So, I don't know. I, 144, why Why is that? That alone would not be enough for, for me to say don't do it. Yeah, I feel like most people who start the classes that uh, I teach start between 140, 145, and 155. Yeah. Is that your experience? Yeah. The the average on the first night of class will be one anywhere between 148 and on rare, rare classes will be all the way as high as like a 154 or something like that average. Mm-hmm. But that's mm-hmm. with people. In that case, it's almost always that people have done prior prep. Mm-hmm. Um, if you did no prep at all and just a cold 144, that is not somebody that I would be panicking about. No. A cold no. 124, you know, now you're like not following the directions. You're just not answering the questions. Your cold 124 might be a lot more to worry about. But yeah, cold 144 is uh, not not terrible. Mm-hmm. Uh, she goes on to say that law schools, of course, are telling me Quote, yeah, you can bring it up and apply to law school to attend for the fall. So I don't know if that means to take the test in June and then apply this fall, but that is crazy. Don't listen to them. Even if you did really well, uh, I would not be excited about the offers that they would have for you. It'd probably be full rate. Yeah, I just got a call yesterday from a woman who was telling me the same story. Uh, she's going to take it in June and she's going to go to law school this fall to some, she's like, it's an accredited school. And it was a school in California that I had never heard of. And she's like, (laughs) it's, and I've been doing this for 10 years in California. And she's like, it's an, it's accredited. And I, I don't even remember the name of it. And I'm like, no, that is not an ABA law school. You know, that might be accredited by the state bar and yeah. Okay. It qualifies you to, to teach or to take the uh, California bar exam, but that is a school that no one has ever heard of. And if you take the LSAT at the last minute and jump right into law school, it's almost guaranteed that you're going to get ripped off. It's just, that's just crazy time. Yeah. That's sort of like saying that, Oh, well, this attorney must be good because they're barred. I mean, anyone, right. people <laughs> right. can get barred. That just means the state uh, has said you are legally allowed to practice law, or in this case, you're legally allowed to teach legal education. But uh, what happens from that is crazy, especially when you think about the news stories that talk about accreditation. They're all about the schools that, quote, might lose their accreditation, and that's news. So uh, it's not news to have accreditation. It's news when you might lose it and still haven't yet generally speaking you uh you need to be taking the lsat you need to be done with the lsat in the year uh prior to the year that you're going to start law school right december is basically the last chance to take it if you want to start law school next year sure so taking the February test and then going to law school that same year, that's already a mistake. But if you're taking the June test and trying to go to law school that same year, that is a big, tragic mistake. You, it's almost guaranteed that you'd be able to get better offers somewhere else if you waited another cycle. Yep. She goes on to say, but my goal is to score a 160 or better. 
to receive a scholarship or some sort of some sort of money because I refuse to pay for law school. Well, if you refuse to pay for law school, which I am totally happy with, then take it in June, but wait and apply next year. Yeah, take it in June, get your 160, apply broadly at the beginning of the next cycle. And you'll, if you apply to enough schools with your 160, you're pretty certain to get some good scholarship offers if you apply to a wide range of schools that are appropriate for you, I would think a 160 is going to get you big money somewhere. I do like that default, that default strategy of just don't pay for law school is a pretty good default to have. Sure. Yeah. It'll change everything about what you do and how you apply and who you're applying to and what you, how you react to their (laughs) offers and everything. The last question is, do you think that I should postpone again or just cancel law school altogether? I mean, this is going back to, I think, her 144. So, so no, don't cancel altogether. And I don't think you should postpone again. We just talked about taking it June. I think she's worried that she can't get to 160 by June. And I, I do think that's a, realist, that's, a, that's a real problem. She might not get up there by June. But you should shoot for June. Shoot and maybe for June. Change, if you're still 152 when the test date change deadline comes up you could consider postponing into september at that point yeah you'll know a lot more by then you just don't know very much right now after taking only one test so just to clarify for anyone listening to this later it's the middle of february right now right so june is you you got march april may at least three three and a half months almost four months away that's plenty of time to get up there especially if you just focus on taking practice tests and reviewing them Yeah, and if you study every day between now and the June exam, and if you can't get yourself to 152, Mm -hmm. then what? Oh, yeah, if you can't get yourself to 152 by June. Yeah, every day study between now and June, and you started at 144, and you can't get yourself to 152. I, I guess I'd be pretty concerned about your potential to go further, although you'd have to dig in and figure out what you know what's going on have you been rushing this whole time getting bad advice reading the question stem first not listening to the podcast every (laughs) single work day you know all those things yeah uh could maybe there's something that's you know simple to fix and then all of a sudden the score starts to go up again and then um that would make sense but yeah but yeah i mean i'm just saying you you should never give up on the basis of one score Mm-hmm. But, you know, if you work at it for three months and then you still aren't seeing any improvement, uh, then maybe we could talk about whether this is, you know, the right path for you. Sure. Yeah. There's more here from Nisha. Yeah. Do you want to pick it up here? Uh, sure. It says, I'm a single mother working a full-time job. I have plenty of support with my daughter, but I'm confused with a question of part-time versus full-time schooling. Being a mom, full-time schooling isn't a great choice, but when I attend open houses for law schools, they aren't geared toward prospective students attending part-time. Some admissions counselors were telling these students that the first year is hardest and more than likely you shouldn't work in your first year. I'm assuming they're telling me I should quit my job in the first year? Double question mark. Okay, so you're very confused there. Almost all part-time students do work, even in the first year. Yeah. 
So, and when these admissions folks are telling you that you're not allowed to work in your first year, I mean, that's an ABA rule, right? That you're not allowed to work. You're, you're not supposed to work at all in your first year if you're going full time. Well, wait, I thought it was, you can't work more than 20 hours. Oh, well, yeah, I guess that's what I meant. Yeah. Okay. So if you, yeah, you're not going to be able to have a full-time job and do law school full-time. Yep. Uh, but part-time is designed for people who are working. So yeah, you're you're a single mother, you've got a job, you don't want to quit that job. It seems like part-time is obviously the right choice for you. Yeah, and most part-time classes, from what I understand, are at night, if not all of them. Yeah. It says, not many schools offer scholarships for part-time students. And I do not want to pay for law school, so that's where it's concerning uh, whether I should rethink law school altogether. I didn't. Did you know that, Ben, that not many schools offer scholarships for part-time students? I, I didn't know that. I, she must have asked or something, I guess. Yeah, or she asked one school. I mean... <laughs> I, it's like that problem we had last time. Yeah, I don't know that that's true, for one. Um, yeah. Not that I don't believe you. I just don't. Maybe you don't. You haven't asked quite widely enough. Hmm. But yeah, that's an issue. If that's true, if they're not offering scholarships for part-time students... And if you don't want to pay for law school, but you can't quit your job because you're a full-time mom, single single mom, maybe law school is not the right play. Yeah. I also want to go out of the state for law school. doesn't say why. But my support system to care for my child is in Miami. Uh, I really like St. Thomas University because it's a five-minute walk from my house, but they have a low bar passage rate of 42%, as well as a low scholarship rate but very easy acceptance versus FIU law who has a high bar passage rate, 88% low tuition, but very hard to get into. And it's a 35 minute commute from home. Well, so this comes down to selection bias, right? Who's going to St. Thomas university, people who can get in easily. So the fact that there's a low bar passage rate, and by the way, I looked up the um, percentage of people who have a legal, related job within six months and it's 44 percent or something like that at st thomas but yeah. at fiu it's like 88 percent or something oh wait that's the bar passage rate but it's very close to the bar passage rate it's it's yeah. very high so or at least comparatively yeah but i think that has to do with who's going to those schools so yeah people definitely mistake the education it's it's not the education that you're getting at that school that's making you pass or fail the bar Mm-hmm. It's that the school's easy to get into. That's why people fail the bar. FIU is hard to get into. That's why people pass the bar. Yep. Simple as that. You have a different group of students who are taking the bar and trying to get employment. With this, you know, this comparison here between St. Thomas and FIU, it seems obvious that your job prospects are going to be way better at FIU. That is not because of the education you receive. That's because of the selection bias up front. If you can get into FIU, then you are employable. And if you yeah. can't, then you have to you have to you have to think about well, wait a minute now, I couldn't get into FIU, mm-hmm. which means that I am kind of more like a uh, now my you know if if St. Thomas is the best school I got into, mm-hmm. then my predicted bar passage rate is something like forty percent. Yeah, it's it's more telling you something about yourself than necessarily about the school. Yeah, 
Exactly. We've talked about this before on the show. I have a feeling we're going to continue to talk about this on the show because that's mm. an important concept that people need to need to get. Um, yeah. Now, if you get into FIU, yep, and you can get a scholarship to St. Thomas. That sounds like a great deal. Sure. Right. Yeah. I mean, she says they have a low scholarship rate, but if you are the type of candidate who can get into FIU, you know, if you get your 160 LSAT or whatever it is, and FIU is like, oh yeah, you're, you know, you do great here. Then you go to St. Thomas and you say, hey, listen, St. Thomas, I'm going to go to FIU, you know, unless you make it very attractive for me to come to St. Thomas. Yeah. And you don't need to tell them that it's a five minute walk from your house either. I mean, a lot of this comes down to why you're going to law school. And if you're just trying to get that degree and then that gives you the freedom to help foster children or whatever. But I mean, if you got into FIU and you got into St. Thomas and the scholarships were the same because St. Thomas just doesn't have the money or whatever reason, I mean, or they just don't have the ability to give that much of a discount because they're already floundering anyway, (laughs) and you go back to them and you ask for more money and they won't, then I would go to FIU because you're going to be, you know, going to school with people who are more likely to get jobs and thus get you connected. So I think there is a benefit to going to a better school if it's the same price, but that's just something to take into account. Yeah. I'm very confused, especially trying to understand how the law schools are ranked and which will have a better outlook for me to pass the bar and receive a job upon graduation if I were to attend full-time, or in my case, continue to work and just receive a promotion once completed. Now, that's interesting. If your job is willing to promote you because you got a JD, yeah, that that would be a situation where it wouldn't, why would the ranking of the school matter at all at that point? People nope. who already know you, and they're saying, oh, we need someone in the legal department. We can promote you to the legal department. All you got to do is get your JD and pass the bar. You know, then the lower ranked school, especially if you're not paying for it, especially if it's convenient for you, would make a lot of sense. Yep. But just remember, if the best school you can get into is a has a 40% bar passage rate, then that means you have like a 40% bar passage rate. Yep. On average, estimated. And you might have special information that makes you know that you're going to pass the bar. That's fine. But if we were betting on a hundred people going to that school, we would put 40% on each one of them to pass because that's the bar passage rate of that school. Yeah. has nothing to do with the education you receive once you're at that school has yep. everything to do with the admission standards of the school. Three or four years from now, you're going to be the same person. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Regardless of which school you go to. And you're going to be facing the same challenge, especially since law schools aren't geared toward preparing you for the bar. The bar is a whole nother industry, bar prep, right? I mean, I think lower ranked schools have started to change that now. It does seem, it seems like the big fancy law schools are still just doing their ivory tower thing Mm. and just, you know, debating con law instead of actually teaching bar law, teaching what the law is and talking about what the law could be, should be, whatever, instead of teaching you what the law actually is. But I think at the lower ranked schools, they've, it, it seems as if they have, started to get very concerned about their bar passage rate and are actually teaching people to pass that, to pass the bar. Yeah. I think they're actually worried. Yeah. Very, very rare, but they're actually worried that they might lose their accreditation and then no longer have a business. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. They'll have to go make money some other way like the rest of the world. Yeah. 
Uh, is that enough for that is, Nisha? Okay. I think. Uh, you want to do the next one? Sure. So this is uh, from a nursing mom. Uh, she just took the February LSAT. Yeah, she was eight months pregnant at the February LSAT. And she's taking the June LSAT. Yeah. And at that point, her child is going to be very young. And it's going to be her second child. And she wants to breastfeed. Now, it just so happens that my wife is a doula. And so she was particularly interested in this because she's all for advocating for the freedom to breastfeed wherever you want, whenever you want. Not entirely, but she's for that uh, because there are definitely people who are opposed to that. So she took this up and she gave this test taker some advice, which I thought was pretty good. Um, First of all, LSAC does not have an official policy on getting a longer break to breastfeed or uh, more breaks to breastfeed during the test. But uh, you can email them and request those accommodations. Those accommodations are decided on a case-by-case basis. And the funny thing was (laughs) they said it on the website. I don't have it right here, but they said each decision is made on a case-by-case basis and all decisions are final. Kind of, kind of sounded like that guy who was just on. A, did you see that one um, <laughs> Trump surrogate who said that the the power of the presidency will not be questioned? I, you haven't seen this, I guess. Oh, it's so funny. Anyways, I gotta find it. But um, in any case, no. She ended up contacting LSAC, and LSAC, the rep that she talked to, was not very helpful at all uh said i don't know what's going on blah 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 and then my wife ended up calling and pretended that she was going to be taking the test and the rep that she talked to was really helpful so i think one takeaway from that is if you call someone and they don't seem to know what they're talking about or they give you a hard time hang up when you're done obviously and then call back because you know you might get the same person but next day call back or call back at a different time because apparently different people know different things, which I guess isn't too surprising. But the the rep that my wife talked to said, yeah, she was pretty confident she could get an accommodation, especially because her child would be so young. Then my wife also looked into the fact that, hey, look, depending on what state she's in, there are a lot of laws. It depends on the state again, but there are a lot of laws that say, hey, you have to provide accommodations for breastfeeding and so if LSAC says no you can come back and say well actually I'm sorry but you have to say yes and the best way the easiest way to figure out what the laws are for your state is to simply uh, contact your local Lelechi League chapter uh, because they are all into promoting breastfeeding and they have their own legal counsel who can tell you exactly what the laws are for your area and where you're at so Okay, cool. Yeah, that uh, my intuition on this was they're going to figure out a way to accommodate you. I can't imagine them not accommodating a breastfeeding Yeah, I think it just depends on how mother. old your child is. If your child is a couple months old, yes. I think if your child is a year old and you're, you're, you're still breastfeeding, which is not unheard of, they're going to be less sympathetic. They're going to say, I don't know how, how necessary is this, and thus maybe no. You know, but then again, it depends on the state laws and how far they go. Yeah. Just obviously email them with the request as soon as possible. And it's like 
the way lawyers work is just the more documentation yeah. you send them in advance, the harder it is for them to say no. So maybe don't just fire off an email. Instead, just go ahead and get this note from your doctor. Oh, yeah. I'm sorry. I forgot to mention that. Yeah. A note from your OBGYN confirming your due date and the need for accommodation. That's what the rep said. That should be enough. And yeah, that's like, that's the evidence that they need to say, okay, sure. Yeah. And and don't wait till the registration deadline. You know, just go ahead and send all that shit off now. Uh, the earlier you get it to them and the more documentation you get it to them, you know, the the harder it's going to be for them to deny you. So I, this seems like no problem, but I'm glad we got the question because it was a novel one. Yeah. Wonderful. We have a subscribe page. If you would like to get notes from each show and a notification as soon as each show is launched, you can go to thinkinglset.com slash blog slash subscribe. What are those forward slashes? Thinkinglset.com forward slash blog forward slash subscribe. Put your email address in and you will start getting notifications the second we release a new episode so that you can be the coolest one on the block and hear it first. <laughs> I guess that's that time to do maybe a bit of logical reasoning. Sure. Awesome. This is always fun. We get to argue with the test a little bit. We are on the June, 2007 LSAT. If you just go ahead and Google June, 2007 LSAT, the very first thing that will pop up is a PDF of this test. This was the official test in June of 2007. And you can go to section three. And we are now all the way down on question number 18, I believe. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. If you're playing along at home, you might want to pause it here and uh, attempt this question. Again, June 2007, section three, number 18. Attempt this question. It starts with editorialist. Uh, attempt this question on your own and then unpause the show and listen to us uh, discuss it. Yeah. What are you thinking when you get to like around this part of the, 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 the test, like number 18? What are you what are you thinking here? I am often reminding myself that. I mean, for whatever reason, I still need to remind myself of this, but I remind myself that I can do a lot in whatever amount of time is left. I mean, I know it would be ideal to not be thinking about the time, but sometimes it comes up nonetheless. And I just remind myself that if I dive into the question, if I try to focus on understanding it, I can get through your questions pretty quickly. So I'm I'm reverting my focus to exactly what's being said. And I that's some of the self-talk that I have going on occasionally. I mean, that's if for some reason I'm feeling, quote, behind. You know, again, something we talk about all the time. It's something we shouldn't worry about. But if, if I find myself doing that, my solution is always just – focus on what's being said and understand it. And that is the fastest way to get through this. And it, yeah. it works. Yeah, I think that's the way to pitch it probably is that understanding is fast. That yeah. If you understand it, then you'll be fast. 
But if you just try to be fast, you're not going to understand it. And then you're going to be slow. Yeah. So when you get to the late teens and the early 20s, yes, you're probably up against it as far as time is concerned. Most people don't finish the sections. Most people shouldn't even try to finish the sections. The clock's ticking. You know, the five minute warning might have already been called at this point. Mm -hmm. But your job is to just get this one right. I mean, you have to get this one right. You can't like number 19 doesn't matter if you don't get number 18 right. So I would, I would also be conscious of the fact that the questions later in the section in the late teens and early twenties, those questions on average tend to be more difficult. They're not getting easier as you get deeper into the section. They're getting harder as you get deeper into the section. So here it's even more dangerous. If you go fast, you're just gonna, you're just gonna have a hard time understanding it. If you're skimming here, if you're thinking about number 19 before you even do number 18, you're going to have a hard time understanding it. So I would be doubling down here on the idea that I have to understand this. It's not impossible, but you know, I have to take the time to understand it. Yeah. And if I understand it, then I can answer it. And then maybe I can get to number 19, but I just can't do that until I really understand number 18. You know, it's interesting as you were talking about thinking about question 19, which would be the next question. It, it reminded me of when I used to do that. That was so long ago. And I was wondering, why don't I do that anymore? Why don't I think about the previous question? So for, or the next question, but often for me, it was the previous question. So it's like you're working on question 18. And as you're reading through the passage, you're thinking, well, wait, maybe it was C, Ugh. you know, with 17. And wow. I don't think this is uncommon, but Maybe it maybe it is uncommon, but I do remember a long, long, long time ago uh, when I was preparing for the test, occasionally finding myself doing that. I'd be working on some question, and my mind would actually be mentally focused on the previous question, and I'm thinking, why, why is it that I no longer do that? And I think, I think it's because if you take the time that is due for the question that you're working on, and you answer it, and you feel good about that answer because you understand what's going on. You can let that go. You don't need to be, well, I rushed through that, and I right. think it was C, but maybe it was D, and yeah, those are both pretty close answers, and well, let's just go with C, and then your mind kind of can't let that go because it's this unfinished business. Right, yeah. Yeah, whereas if you would have taken five more seconds or ten more seconds on that previous question, you might have felt better about your answer. Yeah. And then now you're not going to be distracted when you're doing the next one. Exactly. I mean, I think that's what happens to a lot of people, even top scorers, is that they'll be debating between two answers. Instead of slowing down and just being like, okay, I mean, slowing down. I don't know if that's, I think it is slowing down. But anyways, I will find myself doing this. If I'm like, well, C and D both seem pretty good. I'll be like, okay, wait, let me read through C. Let me read through D. And then something will jump out and it'll be like, oh, yeah. I didn't realize D was flipped or I didn't realize D said theory when we're only talking about specific uh, examples or something like that. And then you're like, well, D is clearly wrong and it is C. And now you can move on with a clean slate as opposed yeah. to, eh, I'm not sure, uh, but I got to move. And it's sort of like the top scores are sensitive to the fact that there was a problem, which is why they were down to two, whereas some people might not even be sensitive to that fact, right? Yeah. But they let themselves move on before they can sort of put the nail in the coffin, if you will, and end the debate 
And that unfortunately actually has consequences down the road. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's like the thing of when you try to do five questions after five minutes has been called. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, exactly. you're, you're, you're trying to do all five of them at once, sort of, you know, you're skimming the surface on all five of them and you're just not going to feel good about your answers on really any of them. And you're going back and forth and back and forth. And that's why so many people get zero points after five minutes has been called. Mm-hmm. If yeah. I'm here looking at number 18 and the five minute warning has been called, I'm thinking I have the opportunity here to differentiate myself between all these other, you know, me and all these other idiots, because I, I'm just going to get this one right. Mm-hmm. And then if I have time, I'm going to get 19 right. But I don't, I'm not, I don't think I have time to do more than that for sure. And I'm, I'm going to just be focused on, as always, I'm going to be focused here on just understanding this one and deeply and then feeling good about my answer. Mm-hmm. And I want to get this one point in the bank and then I'll move on to the next one if I have still time remaining. Yeah. And it, it, if you go into it with that attitude and you finish 18 and then you finish 19 and the timer still hasn't been or the time hasn't been called yet, then it becomes a glass half full thing where you're like, wow, maybe I can maybe I can do another one. And it, yeah. it becomes a, a positive experience instead of, right. oh, I still have three left. This is a total failure. All, all, is, all is lost. Yeah. You want to read it? Sure. So editorialist in all cultures. Pretty strong word there, all cultures, okay. In every single one, it is almost, almost universally accepted that one has a moral duty to prevent members of one's family from being harmed. Okay, that's not super surprising. Thus, few would deny that if a person is known by the person's parents to be falsely accused of a crime, it would be morally right for the parents to hide the accused from the police. <laughs> <laughs> Wait a second. <laughs> Hold on. So if you're a mom and a dad and you know that your daughter has been falsely accused of shoplifting, it would be morally right for you to tell the police that your daughter is not home even though she is, or to scurry them off to Canada. Yeah. No, I don't think people would agree with that. That's not in the best interest of their daughter in the end, right? Yeah, I can't. I just can't. This That sentence starts with the word thus, <laughs> which makes me think that it's a conclusion or perhaps a sub-conclusion of this argument. Yeah. And even if I buy this first premise and we could even take the almost out of it, you know, we could just say, Hey, sure. Universally we all accepted. accept that you have a moral duty to prevent your own family from being harmed. I, yeah. I, let's, let's just say for purposes of argumentation that we, we believe that to be true. Mm-hmm. Therefore you should hide your kids from the police if they're falsely accused <laughs> of something <laughs> in what country? I mean, not not in the United States, I wouldn't. That does not seem like a, a, a smart play. Yeah, because well, and it doesn't even matter if that's true in some cases. This is, <laughs> it's not going to be true in all cases. And this is also just saying few would deny. Even if they could be harmed, there would be a lot of people out there would say, no, 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 you have to turn them over to police and go through the right process. Well, also, I mean, are you really doing them a favor by hiding them from the police? Exactly. Yeah. I mean, are they going to be harmed? You would be harming them and the rest of your family by hiding them from the police. Now you now you're going to get 
<laughs> hit for obstruction of justice, which is how everybody gets in trouble, right? No one actually gets in trouble for the underlying crime. Yeah. Okay. All right. So we we are 100% accepting this first sentence because it's a premise of the argument, but then we're not buying their reasoning. We're off of the bus by the time they get to the second sentence. We're just yep. not okay with, hey, wait a minute. Even if we understand that it's not, we're supposed to protect our family members from harm, but protect from harm does not mean hide from the police. Yeah. Not the same thing. Okay. okay. I mean, it certainly could be. I could see that in some places. It's like, yeah, you better run for your life because yeah. the police are awful. But that's... yeah, if we know the police to be just straight up murderers, you know. That, but that's a that's a premise that is not part of this argument. <laughs> no, <it> wasn't <laughs> okay. So then it says hence, which goes to your point that what we just read was a conclusion because of the word thus. But now it's like uh, it must be an intermediate conclusion or a subsidiary conclusion right. because we have hence. We're gonna draw another conclusion on the basis of this crappy conclusion that we've already been given. Hence, it is also likely to be widely accepted that it is sometimes morally right to obstruct the police in their work. <laughs> hey, there's the obstruction of justice. Yeah, but so that sentence is actually not as objectionable as the second one. No, it's not. If, if you accept the second one, then... By definition, you're accepting the third. Because yeah. we can say hiding from the police is obstructing them. I mean, that's yeah, close enough. To that's close enough. I mean... It... That's not a legal definition of obstruction, by the way. That's just a common sense, like, hey, if you're hiding them from the police, then that is obstructing the police in their work. Okay. Cool. So the biggest, well, it says, the question is, the reasoning in the editorialist argument is most vulnerable to criticism on the grounds that this argument. So this is a flaw question. Anytime it says most vulnerable to criticism, you know you're looking at a flaw question, which means there was a flaw in the argument. If you didn't see it, you better go back now and figure it out. We clearly saw one big problem between the first premise and the first conclusion, which we talked about. And so I would go into this answer or into this these answers with something like just because you believe you should protect your children from harm doesn't necessarily mean you think they should be hidden from the police. Yeah, hiding from the police could actually do them harm. Sure, yeah. I think we're both on the same track there. It's it's the gap between that first sentence and second sentence. That's our That's our objection, right? That's where we're going to raise our hand and say, wait, uh, just uh, <laughs> got to ask a couple questions on this one point here. Yeah. You're telling me that if I want to protect my kid, that means that I should hide them from the police. Yep. Just want to be clear. because That <laughs> doesn't seem like the same thing. Okay. So then as I read these answers, I think you're, we are on the same page with this as well. We're going to be asking ourselves, does this have to be true? Is this all these answers, by the way, are descriptions. They're describing yeah. what the argument is doing wrong. They're, so they're descriptions, and these descriptions have to be 100% accurate. So as we read them, we can say, is this describing exactly what's happening, and is that problematic? Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Did they do it, and is it a problem? Is it a problem? So the answer choice A says, this argument utilizes a single type of example for the purpose of justifying a broad generalization. Mm. It's a trap because of the difference between the second sentence and the third sentence. Yeah. 
You know, I could see people saying, well, wait a minute, you used this one example yeah. of hiding from the police to justify this broad generalization that it's morally right to obstruct the police in their work. I think it's wrong because of the sometimes. I, well, I think, it's, I think it's wrong because of the sometimes and also because of what we talked about. I don't think this is really a big problem. Right. Would that be your objection? Is that your objection to this argument? Yeah. I mean, there's just there's such a better common sense objection. You know, another thing here to point out, I think, is that A comes from the gap between the second and third sentence. Yep. But there's going to be a better answer that we found earlier in the argument. Mm-hmm. Because we took our time and because we objected to the gap between the first sentence and the second sentence, we're way less likely to fall for something like A. Because we already have, we're, we're armed with a, a better, like a better objection. Yeah. So th- we don't even, we haven't looked at the rest of the answers, but we're going to find something that points out the difference between protecting your family from harm and hiding them from the police. There, that's, there is going to be an answer that's related to that big flaw. Yeah. And, and in the rare cases where there's not, right, when the, when the argument gives you a really bad flaw, but they never provide you with an answer that describes that flaw. Pretty rare, by the way, that they do that. I mean, Pretty rare, really, but it, really it, rare. it does happen. And yeah, it, it sure. can be particularly tough ones because everyone's looking for that thing. And, right. you know, then maybe you would come back to an answer like A. But in this particular example, we know that A is wrong because the conclusion isn't even a broad generalization. Like you said, it said sometimes. Yeah. And so this is wrong. But yep. it is something to keep in mind that there is this potential to for them to give you a less obvious flaw and so the more critical you are of the argument throughout the argument, from premise one to, to intermediate conclusion, from intermediate conclusion to main conclusion, the more prepared you are going to be for whatever they give to you, right? As opposed yep. to just reading the conclusion and then being like, well, hmm, or going back and just quickly glancing at everything. But anyways, so answer choice B says, this argument fails to consider the possibility that other moral principles would be widely recognized as overriding any obligation to protect a family member from harm. Mm. Okay, well, it's not exactly what we talked about, but I would keep this open because, A, it is failing to consider this possibility. It never talked about other moral principles. And there could be other moral principles that, override your obligation to protect a family member. I mean, it's a little weird. I I still feel like the best thing here to protect your family member is to turn them over to the police. But if there was some other obligation, like, for example, to honor the other laws of the society, then maybe people wouldn't necessarily believe you should hide them, right? Yeah. I mean, there might be a moral principle that you are always to follow the law of the land, or that the presidency is not to be questioned. <laughs> <laughs> there might be a moral principle that you don't fuck with people that have guns. <laughs> you know, Just a and, moral principle. <laughs> and but so this is a this is very tricky. You know, this is going to turn out to be the answer, I think, because it, it it does do this in that it failed to consider this possibility. It failed yeah. to consider lots of possibilities. Yeah. It, but it did fail to consider this possibility. That those those five words turn this into a weekend question, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Because we were supposed to be describing the argument, but 
it did fail to consider all of these possibilities. And so now, whatever it says after that, now it's just, hey, if this is true, would it be a problem? So it's it's a strange type of flaw question where the answer choice turns it into a weakened question. But if there were other moral principles that would be widely recognized as overriding an obligation to protect a family member from harm, then that would be a big problem for this argument. Yeah, I've heard some students not pick these answers because it says, fails to consider this possibility, and then they say, hey, this was never discussed. And it's sort of like, <laughs> yeah, that's the point. Is that's what it's Did saying. this argument fail to discuss something that it should have discussed? Now, sometimes these answers right. are wrong, and they're wrong because it says the argument fails to consider the possibility that Santa likes ice cream. It's like, well, yeah, it did fail to consider that possibility, but, but that is not, not a problem. problem. Right. If this one said fails to consider the possibility that hiding your child from the police might harm that child. Oh, that would be what we predicted, right? Yeah, that would match the prediction. And it would also use this same fails to consider the possibility that language. Because, yeah, they didn't consider that possibility. And, oh, shit, that would be a big problem. Mm -hmm. That's the same deal with this as these other moral principles. So it's interesting that you talk about how the phrase fails to consider the possibility turns this answer choice, not the question itself, right. but this this uh, answer choice into an essentially a weakened answer. And the question is, does it weaken the conclusion? And it does. Um, I, I noticed that I just quickly looked at the last three answer choices. I didn't read them. I just read the beginning. And the first answer choice C starts with presumes without providing justification. Answer choice D says takes for granted. And answer choice E says takes for granted. And those three introductions, the last two are the same, of course, but those three introductions uh, all turn those answer choices into necessary assumption answer yeah. choices. Yeah, we had this pop up in class the other night that people didn't understand that takes for granted is not the same as fails to consider the possibility that. Mm. Fails to consider the possibility means they did not think about this. Yep. Whereas takes for granted means, oh, they're assuming it to be true. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. And we're specifically talking about a necessary assumption because if you're going to accuse someone of taking something for granted, then it must be an assumption that they had to make, not just one that they yeah. could have made um, in any case. So let's take a look at these with B left open, A is crossed out. Answer okay. choice C says the argument presumes without providing justification. In other words, it necessarily assumes that allowing the police to arrest an innocent person assists rather than obstructs justice. No, no, no. This is the exact opposite. Right? Yeah, I didn't do that. Justice was not even mentioned, but that's not the point. I mean, this is, yeah, C would be backward. Assuming justice is a good thing, C would be backward. Yeah, this argument is assuming that allowing the police to arrest an innocent person causes them harm. Yeah, it yeah. causes them harm and uh, obstructs justice. Okay. Okay. So answer choice D takes for granted that, in other words, necessarily assumes that there is no moral obligation to obey the law. I don't think it does that. It also doesn't uh, ever put in the argument that allowing the police to do their work is isn't obeying the law. Doesn't even sure. say that. Yeah. But even if there were a moral obligation to obey the law, it would be in conflict with this moral duty to prevent 
members from being harmed. It doesn't say what you're supposed to do when two moral duties conflict with one another. I just don't think it did what Dee's describing. Here's a here's a uh, another I think um, key idea that you're getting at. It says it takes for granted that there is no moral obligation to obey the law. This argument doesn't care at all about what is or is not the case. It only cares about what would be widely accepted or what would many people deny or not deny, right? So the these two conclusions in this argument about are about what people believe. And answer choice D is about what is the case. And what is the case may not necessarily reflect what they believe. Okay, yeah, I'll, I'll buy that. Yeah, whereas if you go back to answer choice B, which we are keeping open, it says, fails to consider the possibility that other moral principles would be widely recognized. It's not about whether those other moral principles do or do not override any obligation. They're about whether they would be recognized as overriding those obligations, which is what we're really concerned about. Okay, so we're eliminating D? I'm getting rid of D. Yep, this whole belief versus like reality uh, distinction. Answer choice E, takes for granted that, in other words, necessarily assumes that the parents mentioned in the example are not mistaken about their child's innocence. Mm. Yeah, that's wrong because it, it, it doesn't do that. The premise was if a person is known by the person's parents to be falsely accused, and we have to accept that as a premise of the argument. So it, it didn't take that for granted. It's in the intermediate conclusion, but it's an if clause, right? So right. it's it's like a non-issue. You're saying, well, if this is the case, then this is the outcome. And so we don't yeah. need to decide whether that is the case or not. We're just saying, well, if it is. We're not talking about the cases in which the parents are mistaken. Yep. We're only arguing about what the situation is if a person is known to be falsely accused. Yep. You can't be known to be falsely accused if the parents are mistaken. That's that's talking about a different situation where they don't actually know that the person is falsely accused. Yep. They think it, but they don't know it. Yep. All right. So we got rid of everything except B. So B it is. It's a, it's a, not exactly what we predicted. It's a slightly different take on uh, the problem here, but it is a problem. That is a difficult question because that's exactly the one that I was saying doesn't pop up that often. I mean... They, there is a glaring flaw between the first and second sentence, and the correct answer doesn't actually really describe that glaring flaw. Mm-hmm. Instead, B is saying, yes, it does fail to consider the possibility that there might be these other moral principles, and that's a big problem for the argument. So having eliminated A, C, D, and E, we can then go back and pick B. That's a question that you are going to miss if you try to go too fast. Yeah, yeah. Okay, um, I think we should leave it there. How do people get in touch with us? You can always email us at help at thinkinglsat.com. That will go to both of us, and we'll try to get back to you as quickly as possible or answer your question on the show, of course, as always. And you can tweet nfox, right? At nfox. Yep. If you want to tweet me directly, you can tweet at Strategy Prep if you want to get Ben directly. Tweet at Thinking LSAT if you want to get uh, both of us or you want to get the show. Mm-hmm. Um, you can also always just email Ben at strategyprep.com or me. Uh, I'm Nathan at foxlsat.com. 
And uh, sometimes people post questions too on the blog, right? So Oh yeah, absolutely. Go to thinkingelsat.com and uh, post right there on the blog. Yeah, cool. All right, thanks for listening. We'll be back with you very soon. Great, see ya.